Hello, everyone, and welcome to our February podcast entitled Stronger Market Narrative. I'm joined today by Patrick Good, Seamus Lyons, Niall McDonnell, Alex Byrne, and Asim Kadri. In 2020, the boom in financial markets was in stark contrast with the disastrous effects of COVID-19 at an economic level. The market narrative, or story, played catch-up with the market action, always attempting to justify soaring valuations. This year we've seen a switch, and now there is a strong narrative that is boosting markets to further new highs. We've seen massive stimulus programmes and accelerated vaccine rollouts. We have rock-bottom interest rates and potentially a huge wave of pent-up consumer spending from lockdown savings. Sounds like the perfect recipe for recovery. But what is the risk of overheating? We look at the market's response as the rebound gathers pace and how this story could unwind from here. Patrick, could I ask you to remind us how the financial markets have opened the year? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Lorna. It was a strong start to the year. If we remember back to the first couple of weeks of January, most equity markets, though moving into the second half of January and into February, began to give back some of their returns as as January began to come to a close and certainly as we moved into February. At the end of January, developed market equities ended the month down by about 1% and I guess rather positively we saw emerging markets significantly outperforming, ending January up almost 3%. You referenced the rollout of vaccinations, and in addition to that, there has been lots of discussions around further fiscal and monetary stimulus, which has helped markets to really look forward or look ahead of some of the immediate risks that are presenting themselves in the market today. Certainly, the actions or the results of the democratic sweep in the US has has been incredibly positive, especially for US stimulus stories as well. But it's hard to look past some of the risks that are brewing beyond these positive headlines. And certainly, many of the the structural risks that existed throughout 2020 still exist moving into 2020. 2021. And while markets are focused on the positive news from fiscal and monetary stimulus and vaccination rollouts, these risks definitely feel like they're being papered over with the discussions around fiscal and monetary stimulus. That's interesting. You mentioned the US markets there and Seamus, the US equity markets have made further new highs and the Nasdaq again has been leading the charge. Yes, Lorna. So yeah, after a weak patch in late January, US markets are rallying once again. So the main indices, the S&P 500, the Nasdaq, the small cap Russell 2000, they're all hitting record highs again. Um, but you mentioned the Nasdaq, Lorna, but actually it's been quite a broad rally. So most sectors, be it value or growth, oriented areas of the market, they've all been doing quite well. Actually, so we're near the end of the earnings reporting season, and it's been a really strong couple of weeks for corporate earnings, with over 80% of companies in the S&P beating their estimates, and some of them by a very wide margin. So for instance, the the big tech companies such as Google or Facebook, they enjoyed really bumper earnings. But you also had uh, some great results from the banks and some of the more cyclical companies in the market as well. So the rally really has been quite broad, actually, this year. We heard a lot about the reflation trade the back end of last year, and these cyclical sectors were set to benefit from the new president and the blue wave. How have they been doing? So we saw some strong outperformance of cyclicals and value stocks at the end of last year. That was after a lot of positive developments on the vaccine news. This year, the divergence between value and growth has been less noticeable. So value started the year quite strongly. Just as Paddy mentioned, the Democrats, when they won those two seats in Georgia, so they took control of Congress, and that gave another kind of a leg up to the reflation trade or the blue wave. But actually, since then, you've seen growth stocks do quite well. And much of this is just to do with big tech companies continuing to deliver. So I think it's less of a case of the blue wave actually fading, and it's more of a case that it's just not the only game in town. So big tech, 
the fangs. You know, they're not ready to hand over the baton of market leadership just yet. But I would add one thing, actually, where you have seen some more consistent performance, and that's small caps. So small caps have done consistently very well in the last three or four months. So the Russell 2000, which is the, the main small cap index, that's outperformed the S&P 500 by almost 30% since early November. So small caps have really been big beneficiaries of this kind of blue wave and the anticipated spending that's going to come as a result of these big fiscal injections by the Democratic Party. And those you'd consider to be the more domestic focused stocks? Definitely. I mean, so small caps are often used as a barometer or as a good proxy for yeah, the more domestically focused companies within the market. Yeah, for sure. But quite a contrast, though, in the bond markets, Niall. Could you talk us through this rapid steepening of the yield curve? And that is where the yields on longer dated bonds have been rising more sharply than short dated bond yields. Yes, indeed, Lorna. So bond prices have fallen in longer dated government bonds and the yields have risen. So when we've seen this type of yield curve steepening by longer date rates rising, it points to the market pricing in higher interest rates in the future. So central banks will typically raise interest rates to temper an economy overheating and also manage inflation getting too high. So the market is pricing in this expectation that we are getting closer to interest rates rising in the longer term. But I think there's also a dynamic, as Seamus mentioned, on fiscal expansion. So government spending more. The US has gotten through their COVID stimulus package and there's also a recovery plan in the pipeline, which we've yet to see. But even in 2021 alone, the market has 1.8 trillion in US dollar treasuries issuance to digest. So I think really it's a combination of one, positive GDP and growth dynamics in the global economy. Two, pricing in a bit higher expectation on inflation. And then three, the increase in supply as governments come to fund these recovery programs to get out of the COVID crisis. Alex, Europe is notoriously sensitive to changing economic cycles. What response have we seen in those equity markets? Thanks, Lorna. So yeah, that's right. It's linked to the global economy. It's a very outwardly looking trader. It's currency obviously being one of the global reserve currencies and also just the makeup of the main market indices being a bit more cyclically tilted means that it is typically one that reacts quite suddenly or at the brunt end of these economic cycles. The pandemic itself had a pretty sized effect on Europe. As you remember, it was the epicenter for a long period of time of the COVID crisis at the beginning, which led to obviously European assets underperforming fairly largely in the early part of the pandemic. So since the summer, we've had an underperformance from Europe versus most developed and emerging market equities. Until pretty recently, in part that was driven by the UK, which obviously had its own problems as well as the virus. Since Q4 started in year date, the performance has been slightly better, but it still lags most of developed markets and it's still well behind the drivers of emerging markets in Asia, which have been the stark outperformers in that period. The other factor which you've got to consider is the level of stimulus that Europe's been able to deploy versus the US, the UK, China. They've been able to put in stimulus fairly quickly and in large amounts. Although Europe was able to do that through individual countries increasing their monetary policy stimulus, a large part came through the EU as well, and that's only recently been signed off, which means that the effects will take much longer to come through. So they're well behind other markets on that. So that combined with the vaccine strategy not going too well means that the outcomes of Europe are pretty finely balanced, which means, which kind of explains why the performance hasn't been as strong. And did we not then see this expected outperformance of value sectors versus growth? Was that inhibited by these factors that you're saying there? It was, yes. Yeah. So all 
all through the summer, the value performance was behind that of growth very significantly. It was only really in November when we had that quite sharp inflection that value actually caught up. But to this point in time, from the initial downset that we had, value and growth are at fairly similar levels. So November, you can see there was a real big catch up over the vast amount of time growth has continued to outperform. So not much to choose between them there. Asim, if we can turn to China, it was the only major economy to show positive growth last year, covered early from its COVID-19 lockdowns. The Chinese economy is once more sucking in industrial metals and, of course, commodities such as oil and foodstuffs. Hi, Lorna. Yes, that's right. So China's economy has continued to show strong momentum. And as you mentioned, it managed to grow on a year-on-year basis last year, delivering 2.3% GDP growth, which really illustrates the strength of the recovery from COVID. So although growth has broadened and retail sales have become positive in recent months, the industrial sector is still leading the way with manufacturing now essentially back to normal. So that strength in industrial activity and in particular policy-driven infrastructure spending has been driving strong domestic demand for industrial metals and commodities. So there was a very strong year in 2020. Has China's equity market fared at the start of this year? Chinese equity market has had a very strong start to the year. So it's outperformed other emerging markets, and that's really been amid strong liquidity and investor sentiment, particularly in the offshore market. And is this a reverse of what we saw towards the back end of 2020 when markets were looking forward to a vaccine-led recovery? So in the fourth course of last year, China underperformed, and a number of the more cyclical, economically sensitive markets that are more exposed to commodities and were more impacted by COVID, they outperformed after a difficult year up to that point. However, as similar to what we've seen in the US, the performance trends we've seen this year has really been a continuation of what we saw for the majority of last year. So a small subset of mega cap tech names really driving returns in China. And really valuations in these technology companies do definitely look stretched now. And that's led to some concerns over asset bubbles, which did lead the People's Bank of China to tighten financial conditions a couple of weeks ago. And that resulted in a sharp sell-off in Chinese equity markets towards the back end of January. Yes, indeed. Now that brings us on to the role of central banks, which despite all this fiscal or government stimulus is still pivotal. Seamus, if the US economy really does rebound as strongly as potentially it could, will the Federal Reserve be able to maintain its promise of stable interest rates until 2022? Yes, so uh, this is a really interesting topic. So let's not forget that the job of the Fed was once described as taking away the punch bowl just as the party gets started. In this particular recovery, I sense they might just let the party go on for a little bit longer than usual. They certainly want to avoid another taper tantrum like we had a number of years back. And I think they'll tolerate a little bit more overheating than they probably would have done in the past. So they're also adopting a more flexible approach to inflation targeting. And that gives them more scope for inaction or delaying any tightening of monetary policy as well. So the lower for longer interest rate policy could well continue into any rebound? Yes, I think so. I mean, what's part of their dual mandate is to target inflation and keep it under control. The other objective is full employment for the economy. So we're hearing a lot of different views about what kind of recovery we're going to experience. Is it going to be K-shaped, V-shaped, etc.? But one thing for sure is that the US labour market shrank significantly in 2020 and the unemployment rate now is still almost double what it was in February of last year. So the Fed's going to remain very focused and doing all it can to ensure that this rate continues to fall and for it to get back below 4%. And if this means being lower for longer, then I think the Fed will stay the course. Yes, thank you for that. Patrick, could I ask you then to summarise our discussion today? Yeah, I think today's discussion reminds us of two important things. First, governments and central banks 
are fully committed and remain fully committed to supporting economies with large fiscal stimulus and, and effective monetary policy conditions that you know have been largely echoed by, as, as James alluded to, the US Fed, but also many of the other G4 central banks, which will give investors reason to be optimistic. Second, January showed us that COVID still remains a risk. New highly infectious strains and the risk that existing vaccines might be less effective against some mutations reminds us that the bridge to the post-COVID world might be longer than we all wish for. So after a strong run in, in risky assets at the start of January and a recent pause for breath at the end of January and into the start of February, staying cautiously optimistic seems like a sensible position in most portfolios during this still challenging period for investing. Thank you all very much indeed. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks Lorna. Thank you.